the study of race, politics, and culture at the University of Chicago, New Dawn, a podcast about understanding the connections between race, capitalism, and neoliberalism, with your host, Michael Dawson. It's my pleasure and, and a bit of a surprise to have my friend and colleague who we've been hanging out in one way or another now for, it's been over a decade, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been like 15 years, actually. Yeah, and so I already knew I was old, but that might, what, what does that make you? T- <laughs> so I'm like, I'm embarrassed. I'm, makes me embarrassed. I'm happy to, to introduce Dr. Toussaint Lothier, Assistant Professor in the W.E.B. Du Bois Department of African American Studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Dr. Lothier holds a Ph.D. in history from the University of Chicago with a research focusing on grassroots responses to the post-war emergence of mass incarceration in Chicago. At New Mass Amherst, he teaches courses on African-American history, black politics, criminal justice, and transnational social movements. His writing has been published in a number of outlets, including Souls and Radical History Review. And he is working on a, on a extra, book that's going to be extremely important, The War for the City, Black Chicago, and the Rise of the Carceral State. He's also, which doesn't make his webpage at UMass Amherst, long-term activists in Chicago and elsewhere that has been involved in community struggles in black communities for quite a while. So I um, look forward to talking about both his scholarly and his activist work and see if we can illuminate the political situation we find ourselves in today. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. So let's start with some of your research. There's been, a, as you know far better than I do, a, a number of works by um, important scholars like Michelle Alexander, Elizabeth Hinton, and, and many others in a variety of disciplines, history, political science, legal studies, mm-hmm. on mass incarceration. But when I read your work, I'm struck by the fact that the story you tell is one that is different in the sense that it's so locally grounded mm-hmm. that it may lead us to different conclusions. Tell us a little bit about what, what you found in terms of the history between black political organizing in Chicago and in Illinois and the rise of the carceral state in the, in, in the state of Illinois. Mm-hmm. Thank, first of all, thank you for the question. I think one of the I think key things that I've come across and has really kind of informed my work is really the relationship between prisoner organizing and really the period of the 1970s is a kind of a pivotal moment in terms of struggles taking place behind bars and shifts not only in strategies of prison management, but also changes in sentencing and the broader uh, set of laws governing criminal justice that we normally associate with the kind of war on drugs and a sort of turn towards punitive, a kind of punitive approach to corrections and what have you, that those, that sort of shift begins during the late 1970s and the kind of intellectual authors, at least in Illinois, of this kind of shift in criminal justice policy, attribute their kind of policy innovations and the work that they're trying to do in terms of moving towards a more like mandatory minimums, uh, getting rid of parole, focusing less on questions of rehabilitation. They attribute that to the problem of prisoner activism 
and the the sense that prisons are in kind of in turmoil. There's a significant amount of disruption. And the best way to deal with that problem is not just to manage prisons differently, but also to change the ways in which prisoners understand the amount of time that they're going to spend behind bars. And if there's a set period of time that they're going to be behind bars, that is going to make it such that prisoners will have less reason to be disruptive. Something along those lines is some of the logic that they put forward. And those, that kind of sort of intellectual explanation and also the legal changes that kind of policy innovators put forward really lays the foundation for the increased number of people that we see behind bars that, that really takes off during the 1970s and through the 1980s, uh, years before we get to the Reagan era war on drugs, and really offers opportunities for us to understand, to kind of read prisoners and prisoner activism back into the narrative that's oftentimes associated with mass incarceration. And it's oftentimes a question of either crime on the streets or responses to civil rights activism and black power movements, questions of kind of repression on the outside, and really offers an opportunity for us to kind of see the prison wall as a more permeable, as a kind of a more permeable boundary and to have a better sense of how the activity that takes place behind bars has a political, there's a political valence to it and that it has an impact both positively and negatively on changes that are taking place both within prisons and in the broader society. So one of the arguments, there are several, I mean, obviously there are several arguments I find fascinating about your work, but one that's particularly relevant to those of us who are working at the Racing Capitalism Project is that you make an argument about surplus labor and the hyper-unemployment of young of black youth in particular and some of their activities to try to get jobs mm-hmm. as one of the motivations for some of the crackdowns that we see in Chicago in the, in the late 60s and early 70s. Can you say more about that? Sure. So Chicago is unique in a number of different ways, but one thing that's characteristic of kind of black communities in Chicago that uh, pops up in other places but is um, particularly important is the, is the dynamic of uh, gang organizations, street organizations, kind of youth organizations. And one of the things that has come up in my research that I think is really important is the way in which those street organizations, gang organizations, uh, for a, a good period of the 1960s are involved not just in uh, criminal activity, but also efforts to improve their economic opportunities. Uh, youth manpower projects, um, kind of community entrepreneurial activities, small businesses that kind of hop back and forth between kind of legal activity and kind of illegal activity. And uh, one of the things that I think this offers us an opportunity to kind of shift our perspective on is that oftentimes the question of mass incarceration is a question of, is put forward as a question of, here's the prison system playing a sort of structural role in in kind of absorbing people who are made surplus by the changes in our economy, right? You have folks being, um, losing job opportunities or never gaining job opportunities because of deindustrialization and shifts from a kind of an industrial economy to a, a service economy. And part of what that misses is the way in which even before the period in which we see a, 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 a this sort of takeoff towards mass incarceration during the mid to late 1970s, you have struggles around these young folks who are involved in different gang organizations trying to get job opportunities in the city of Chicago and coming up against 
police surveillance with the gang intelligence unit coming up against political opposition from the Daily Machine and uh, war on gangs that Daily and uh, some of his protégés, like Hanrahan, are uh, responsible for putting forward at the same time that they're organizing for job opportunities. And also pretty stiff opposition from the Building Trades Union, from the Contractors Association of Chicago that are incredibly resistant to expanding opportunities for uh, young folks who do not have jobs to get a foothold into the building trades as an opportunity for, uh, as a means of gaining economic opportunity. And that combination of forces takes place at the very same moment in which increasing numbers of gang members are being, Chicago's gang members are being incarcerated and also uh, having a greater presence within the prison system and really increasing their ability to organize and establish an organizational presence in prisons like Stateville and Pontiac and and, uh, a little bit in Menard as well too. So part of what I think that really forces us to do is kind of step outside of the general take that just sort of sees the problem of surplus labor at this moment as simply a problem of kind of like the sort of disaffected kind of lumpen proletariat and to really see the ways in which young black people in the late 1960s are are kind of in a moment where they're demanding a greater set of opportunities to kind of legitimate their presence within the working class, to kind of move up at least to some degree from the sort of lower strata of the black working class to to gain more of an opportunity, gain more opportunities in the, in the legitimate economy. And then also, there are some ways in which the their increased incarceration really is a reflection of how race and class hierarchies are being managed and maintained um, at a very, you know, in a moment of crisis and at a critical moment prior to um, the kind of expansion of what we now talk about in terms of the carceral state and the problem of mass incarceration. I think the story of street organizations and gang activity in Los Angeles is generally better known than the Chicago story, although the Chicago story in some ways is the classic motto. Mm-hmm. What, to what degree, what form did the sort of politicization that you described take place, and what were some of the ways that, both in and outside of prison, that black youth and street organizations were organizing politically? I think there's a a variety of ways in which people have kind of tried to trace some of that politicization. I think the most important thing that I've seen those involved in these gang organizations talk about themselves is really the powerful uh, mobilization that takes place within Chicago's black community during the course of the Chicago Freedom Movement, the Civil Rights Movement here. And if you look at the variety of different struggles, you know, kind of the best known example is when King comes to Chicago is in, and is involved in both the campaign against slums and then also some of the fair uh, fair housing protests. And you know, there's there's accounts by folks involved in different different organizations talking about how the vice lords or the disciples, you know, walked with King when he was when he was going through Lawndale or were part of his kind of mar- you know were part of the demonstrations that were going through some of the communities in which the open housing protests were, were going on and were not interested in being nonviolent but wanted to throw you know bricks back at the um, at the the crowds that were that were menacing King uh, to the way in which 
King's own aides were trying to actively engage, politicize, uh, win over to nonviolence uh, some of the some of the local youth organizations in you know different parts of the West Side and the South Side. That that was a really formative moment. But if you also look at the way in which the school boycotts that were taking place, the organizing that was taking place around in high schools, especially following King's assassination, that this was you know there was a really formative, this was a really formative period, and that there was. Uh, a variety of different ways where young people, whether they wanted to or not, were being swept up into a kind of political life. And that those instances of organizing really helped to shape the way in which the kind of best-known gang organizations, groups like the um, Blackstone Rangers, uh, the Disciples, the Vice Lords, emerged as these kind of mass, you know, large-scale gang organizations, kind of similar to what people think about when they think about sort of like the Crips or the uh, the Bloods in Los Angeles, but are are really coalitions of different neighborhood sets, and more so than people talk about with LA gangs, are really folks coming from really kind of a uh, re- reflect a diversity of political positions where you have some folks, especially you see this happen more with groups like the Blackstone Rangers, kind of having more of a nationalist politics or more interested in sort of the the, um, the demands of black power. But even groups like the Vice Lords, kind of the development of the conservative Vice Lords, have moments where they really engage in community organizing and are talking about how do we transform ourselves from just a, a kind of a group that's on the margins of what is generally considered to be like acceptable social activities involved in crime in one way or another, and how do we orient ourselves and become like an asset to the community. And that that is uh, something that really is in play through the mid to late 1960s and this kind of moment that I talked about in 1969 where you have these demands where gangs are involved in trying to shut down construction sites and win jobs and access into the trades union trade unions that this is a kind of culmination of earlier efforts to politicize gang members, for gang members to say, how can we be involved in really demanding some justice for ourselves, but also for the wider community, that that takes place over a period of time. Hearing you talk about this work over the last couple of days, is would it be fair to say that what you had in the black community was a United Black United Front that included multiple organizations and that a lot of the actual power of the United Front came from street organizations and the participation of both organizationally as individuals, the gang members, and that they were in fact responding to a white United Front that included corporations, mm-hmm. labor unions, the political establishment under Daly, and in some cases the police as well. Mm-hmm. Is, would that be an accurate uh, depiction of of what was going on politically in some of these struggles they were engaged in? I think it was definitely a really sophisticated form of coalition politics, right, where you have, I mean, 1969, uh, summer 1969, you really see the emergence of uh, a coalition amongst the Lord Stones and Disciples that they refer to as LSD, right, which is kind of a, a, a catchy phrase in and of itself, but, you know, it, by their own terminology, they were like, look, we call ourselves LSD, one, because it, you know, it... All of our groups are represented in it. And also, you know, our plan is to take Chicago on a trip, right? Our plan is to take Chicago someplace it hasn't been before. But then in addition to that, 
coalition of gangs that, you know, just a year ago had really been at each other's throats, especially if you look at what was happening with the Stones and the Disciples in, 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 in Woodlawn and some other parts of the South Side, that you also have what is supposed to be a coalition of 60 different civil rights organizations called the uh, Coalition for United Community Action, right? And that they're bringing together kind of more militant black power organizations as well as, you know, groups like um, Jesse Jackson's Operation Push and, you know, led the spokesman first for it was C.T. Vivian, who was kind of a marathon runner, civil rights activist, right? So, and that at the same time that at the same time was dealing with the way in which as you as you suggested the kind of the chicago machine as well as the trade unions as well as the the contractors association and the uh, the kind of builders employers association understand that they're coming together around the common interest of really maintaining the status quo in terms of how segregated the trade unions are and how um, resistant they have been in the past to really opening up the amount of job opportunities that exist outside of a set number of of individuals and family members and what have you. And in addition to that, and I haven't been able to trace this as closely as I'd like to, but there are some indications that during the negotiations that were taking place between this broad coalition of civil rights and street organizations, you know, uh, at one end of the table and at the other end, the contractors and trade unionists and what have you, that one of the rumors, one of this kind of mo- uh, kind of points of speculation that gets floated is that the resistance from the trade unions and the contractors association, uh, that they're getting word from like the AFL-CIO, right, and other uh, national union organizations that if you do not, you know, concede to the demands that are being made to provide, you know, uh, thousands, uh, 4,000, 5,000, apprentice positions and on-the-job uh, training positions for black folks in Chicago. Because if you do this here, it's gonna, we're going to see the same thing happen in Pittsburgh, in Seattle, in Philadelphia, in New York, in Los Angeles. And it's going to be a problem, right, in terms of the way in which um, labor operates. And that that is not just the, the dynamics of what's taking place in Chicago, not just a local problem, but is and one that's directly connected to the power structure in the city, but is uh, has broader national implications. I hadn't heard that rumor before, but it makes sense to me because I do know that in New Jersey, at the in Mawa, New Jersey, of course, in Detroit, in, in not just all the plants, but throughout the union movement more generally, and some of my own work in California, that many years later, is that there were caucuses of black and Latino workers and communities that were organizing to make demands that for these type of jobs. And th- I know there were that the type of construction shutdowns that we saw in Chicago also occurred in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. and other places. So I didn't know that. I mean, it makes sense that the national union movement would be very resistant to local concessions precisely for that reason. Mm-hmm. One of the other areas that I know you've done some scholarly work and also know that you've done some activist work in is around housing, mm-hmm. which, of course, connected to some of the questions we've been talking about. And one of the themes that of some of our podcasts have been global aspects of racialized capitalism. So I know you've studied some of the housing struggles in South Africa, and I know mm-hmm. you participated in housing struggles in Chicago in the contemporary period. What are some of the similarities and lessons you see between the two different places in terms of the type of 
challenges that activists and community residents find in trying to fight for affordable housing and decent housing. So one of the things that I think struck me after, you know, I, I had this really wonderful opportunity to kind of kind of sit at the feet and learn from housing organizers in uh, Cape Town, South Africa, who were involved in a group called the Western Cape Anti-Eviction Campaign, and really get a sense of how they, one, how they organized, right, and how they saw themselves doing social movement work, and doing social movement work that was explicitly poor people's organizing, right? This is not, what you know, they had a, they had a, uh, a kind of, a criticism of what we would talk about in terms of nonprofit organizations, they termed NGOs, I had a criticism of ANC and the broader alliance of forces that is in political power in South Africa, and also were very much grounded in the struggle against apartheid with folks who had been in the student movement, who had been underground, and who had been involved in kind of very militant neighborhood organizing during the, the 80s and the, the early 90s and what have you. And to kind of connect that to the U.S. and one, see a real stark similarity in terms of the, you know, the the manifestations of kind of what could be considered a sort of, you know, like a a logic of kind of post-apartheid inequality, right, in South Africa and see amazing resonance with sort of a post-civil rights inequality, racial inequality here in the U.S. to really have a, a very on-the-ground education in what neoliberalism means at a moment where, you know, like early 2000s, people kind of are talking about neoliberalism here in the U.S., but not really, right? And are talking about it in a very kind of maybe kind of wonky way, but not in a way that is engaged with questions of race and class as the way people live on it in in an everyday kind of way, right? Mm -hmm. And that, you know, when I'm in South Africa, people are like, yeah, we have a problem of, you know, neoliberal political economy, right? And that is not a, that's not a a question that people are talking about in terms of this is a university classroom discussion, but, you know, talking to like guys on the block and they're like, yeah, 1996 ANC implements, you know, gear, growth, employment, and redistribution. And that is our, you know, that's when neoliberalism really comes into force in South Africa, you know, like in terms of economic policies. And I'm like, okay, all right. <laughs> you know, Teach. I need, yeah, I was like, all right, tell me more, you know. And that level of pl- political sophistication, seeing what that means and what that means both in terms of everyday conversation as well as in terms of how people are organizing and making connection between those broader kind of large-scale policies and also what that means in terms of the lack of affordable housing, the lack of housing just in general. You know, all those things I think were really formative and also really helped me to think concretely about some of the dynamics in Chicago where you have a different immediate history but also a broader sort of large-scale problem in terms of the way in which neoliberalism rears its head in different ways in terms of the privatization of public housing, right? In terms of um, a shift from um, kind of project-based housing to kind of Section 8 vouchers, the destruction of places like Robert Taylor, Cabrini Green, and what have you, and then um, the way in which those, that kind of market-oriented set of uh, policies, but also set of policies that are oriented towards 
the further enrichment of shifting power towards finance capital and away from everybody else, but particularly like working class communities, is reflected in the, it was really, really kind of demonstrated during the course of the foreclosure crisis. And then even being in conversation with folks who had, you know, spent years organizing in public housing and being able to, you know, hearing from them the way they talked about, look, whatever is taking place in terms of the crisis of 2007, 2008, the financial crisis, the broader Great Recession, that that was nothing new. And the dynamics of that were, were laid, at least in terms of how the housing market, the landscape of public housing was transformed during the course of the early 2000s. And if you look at the way in which Chicago, in particular Chicago's black neighborhoods, have been impacted by the foreclosure crisis, it shouldn't be surprising because Daly's, and this is a younger Daly, his push to really get rid of so much of the public housing that existed in the city, to privatize so much of the public housing stock, created an incentive for folks to purchase uh, single-family homes, uh, two-family homes, or three-family homes, and open those up for rental for folks who were going to be, who were being pushed out of public housing and going on the Section A vouchers, and that that is somewhat unique to Chicago. That shift from the state to the market really laid, uh, at least locally, the foundation for the foreclosure crisis to have such a devastating impact, and to really think across. Uh, to be able to think how to to understand kind of broader shifts in political economy, to think about kind of the way in which those can impact locally and those can also be carried out through uh, a set of local policies and kind of sets of market activity. You know, having seen that and kind of experienced how that operates in South Africa and then kind of get involved in that same sort of organizing in Chicago was was really an important sense of how to like practice organizing and also how to how to unwind what could otherwise be considered a pretty complicated picture of like this is happening and then that is happening and then that is happening. If I could give maybe one example. Of course. The last time I was in South Africa in uh, 2000 and, uh, 2007, the Western Cape anti-eviction campaign was involved in a project called the Into Gateway Project, where basically there was a whole bunch of um, uh, informal settlements along the highway from the airport to Cape Town, uh, the main city. And so they wanted to like cover that up because people would come in, fly into the airport, and they would drive along the highway and be like, oh, this doesn't look good. There's and a tourism <laughs> is very big in the Western Cape. <laughs> yeah, it's huge, right? <laughs> yeah. So what the city was looking to do was to tear down all these shanty towns to to push people off of the highway into new housing, but to essentially to displace people and to displace people to the outskirts of the city. And at the same time, the communities that they were displacing people to, people there had been demanding housing for a long period of time. And so you had several different communities with a variety of different interests. And, and one of the other things that they were trying to do was build some middle-class housing in the mix in, along the highway. And the Chicago anti-eviction campaign kind of took on this project where it was trying to organize people who were facing displacement, people who were homeless or kind of like um, doubled up in other people's houses, 
and people who were interested in buying into this kind of middle class housing scheme and trying to think, how do we organize all these people with different interests to fight a really bad policy and do it in a way that is democratic and also is, is militant at the same time, too. And there's a way in which that model, and it, it was a really complicated and messy enterprise, but also fantastic in terms of the amount of solidarity that the campaign was able to build between folks who were coming from different racialized communities, people who were coming from different kind of positions within the working class and had different aspirations in terms of what they wanted to achieve to try to take that up in terms of some of the local organizing and say, okay, we're trying to organize for the right to housing here in Chicago. We're dealing with people who were faced with foreclosure, right? Who were, you know, who kind of thought they had bought into the American dream and are now getting the rug pulled out from under them and they're going to lose their home and they're going to be homeless. We're trying to organize people who are homeless or are doubled up in other people's houses and need access to housing. And we're trying to also deal with folks who had lived in public housing and are now facing displacement, or people who are renters and maybe losing their home to foreclosure, right? How do we do that in a way that's democratic? How do we do that in a way that's militant? How do we do that in a way that brings together people with a variety of different interests? And, you know, you got black middle, kind of middle class people who were like, you know, who would be in meetings and be like, you know what? You guys from public housing, y'all are all right. A year ago, I wouldn't have messed with y'all at all. Like, I wouldn't have anything to do with you. But, yeah, you know. i that too many times. Yeah, but now, you know, I, like, I, I'm liking the opportunity to kind of work together. And that the opportunities for some sense of solidarity broadly. And, I, again, I don't know if it would be best understood as a, as a united front, but a real kind of coalition effort in some sense, in a, in a very small C sense, is is messy and is really complicated to do, but I think is an important way of dealing with the, uh, the ways in which kind of race and class operate at this moment in time. So one of the, I think, more invisible aspects of neoliberalism and housing with respects to blacks and Latinos is the, one of the so-called victories of the Clinton administration. There's a book by Panis and Jindan mm-hmm. on globalizing empire. One of the points, and it's about financialization of the global system of capitalism. But it's one of the few books that occasionally talks about race, not often enough. But they do point out that one of the ways that a lot of people have been trapped um, and that also led to the foreclosure crisis is that the Clinton administration, very much under the guise of expanding the American dream, brought a ton of middle-class and working-class black folks into home ownership, which means they became part of the system of financialization. Exactly. But also allowed predatory late rates of, li- of, of lending, lending to these populations, which yeah. set them up for a double whammy once the foreclosure crisis hit. So maybe we can conclude with a fairly open-ended question about, depending on your taste, where do we go from here or what is to be done? Um, and we live in a period of, as we said on previous podcasts, of growing right-wing populist mobilizations in countries such as Hungary, France, the United Kingdom, and of course now the U.S. with Trumpism. What does that mean for the type of organizing that you study in poor black communities today? And what are some of our responsibilities as scholars? Uh, Okay, the what is to be done question. You know, (laughs) I mean, I think that, you know, I obviously hold the kind of organizing that... um, 
the Chicago anti-eviction campaign has done in terms of housing as an entree into broader community organizing and kind of high esteem because I think, you know, the the work that uh, was done in terms that uh, I just sort of described in terms of dealing with folks who are folks who are homeless, folks who are uh, renters, just getting by, people who are um, kind of homeowners, but in, in a kind of an incredibly kind of precarious position, that that is part of dealing with like working class politics. And to, to kind of understand working class, the working class is kind of having a, there's a fair amount of unevenness in terms of where folks are expressly in terms of their economic opportunities, their material reality and whatnot, that 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 really getting into that messiness is an important part of the organizing that, that uh, has to happen going forward, both within uh, communities, right, in a, in a much deeper way than is currently being done, um, that kind of is has an opportunity to both mobilize people to take to the streets, as kind of we've seen happen during the first month or so of the Trump administration in a really kind of fantastic way, but also in a way that goes beyond just saying, how do we turn people out for demonstrations, but how do we deal with folks' basic needs and really getting to the hard stuff of the, of organizing. One thing that kind of uh, people talk a little bit about kind of organizing today, and I, I do think it's important that peop- there are some folks who previously have kind of been activists are now thinking about, like, I'm, I now think of myself as, say, an organizer or what have you. But I think in the campaign, one of the things that really moved us more from activism to organizing was when we stopped doing sort of like, this day is a national day of action where people around the country are going to get out into the streets and then said, you know what, we've got this family that's homeless. We've got these empty buildings where people have been foreclosed on and, you know, forced to leave. What do we say if we moved you know, work with the family to move into that house, right? What has to happen on a day-to-day basis to make sure that family is all right? What do we have to do in terms of regular engagement with the neighbors to make sure that the neighbors are all right with having somebody who used to be homeless, having a building that used to be empty, now, you know, that building's now occupied by the formerly homeless family. And seeing that as a manifestation of the idea that organizing means commitment, it means kind of a long-term or at least a medium-term form of political work on a, on a regular, ongoing basis, right? That that's the kind of deeper activity that needs to be happening, and both in terms of challenging the powers that be as well as dealing with the issues that folks have that need to be solved before, you know, there's a shift in terms of who is in power or something to that effect. Uh, so that's one thing. I think there's a, there's a lot that needs to happen in terms of the scholarship that we have at the moment that gets us more that gives us a better understanding of how class works and that as kind of this podcast is about reads race class and gender in a more sort of sophisticated way there's a lot i think there's a lot of ways in which we sort of both i think popularly and even in scholarships talk about questions of like intersectionality right uh but i think one of the disservices that that we've done to you know, the folks who originally kind of came up with the idea of intersectionality is that there's not really a good reading of class in, in terms of how we talk about how, how intersectionality is generally talked about. I think the degree to which scholars can at least contribute to pushing the envelope in terms of really giving us a sense of how 
what race is the modality through which class is lived, how uh, gender shapes one's class experience, how um, all of these things can, can really ground, better ground our analysis and ground our political work is really an, an important contribution is, is, is kind of how I want to answer that question. And then the other thing is I think there's a, there's a messiness to the, um, the sort of political work that we did where we, you know, we did a lot of organizing in Chicago on the south side, some on the west side. But, you know, there were times when we would get pulled to the suburbs and we would have to do, you know, there would be like white families in the suburbs that would, be, that would say like, hey, we're going to get, you know, foreclosed on. You guys are about the human right to housing. Can you help us out? And we really had to think about the degree to which we were not allowing ourselves to be too narrow and that we were really thinking about how we could build kind of like a broader, we could really kind of create a broader umbrella in which uh, folks from a variety of different racial class backgrounds could work with us as long as they were committed to, you know, the same principles that we had and also the same you know, we're willing to kind of throw down and fight the banks at the same time, too. And uh, that off, you know, there were a lot of ways in which that worked and it didn't work. But I think we need to find ways to build deeply in our communities and then also find ways to expand beyond just our communities and really break the kind of fragile coalition that um, Trump is, is put together and that the right wing is sort of put together and really kind of undercut that and uh, do it in a way that is about how, you know, how do folks who are getting by on a day-to-day basis get the job opportunities that they need? How do we deal with the question of like, you know, uh, climate change? How do we deal with, uh, a, a, you know, a host of different issues, but uh, really puts us in a position to move from just being in a sort of defensive position, which it kind of feels like we're sort of in and we'll be in for a little while now. And how do we, you know, have an opportunity to kind of go on the offensive to some degree? Well, thank you. And I would point out that one of the great aspects of your work and the period you write about is that one of the genius aspects of both the civil rights and black power movements were the ability to work up with rising up angry and the young lords in, in, in Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, Puerto Rican and uh, white youth organizations working alongside the Black Panther Party and, for that matter, Black Street organizations. Mm-hmm. Same thing happening in Detroit in all the plants, mm-hmm. um, whether it be Lebanese and mm-hmm. <coughs> working with white workers under the often under the leadership of Black revolutionary leadership at the time, mm-hmm. and the ability to deep to build deeply within one community and also build across with other and work with other communities mm-hmm. is an art mm-hmm. and practice that mm-hmm. we need to strengthen once again. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity.